Hello and welcome to another episode of the Godly Grown Podcast, where we train soldiers to be better Christians and Christians to be better soldiers. I'm your host, John Cooper, and uh, today we will be uh, listening to a sermon I preached last week. Um, we've been going through voting with an open Bible, but uh, last week, President, uh, the President of the United States, he put out a uh speech that was rather alarming. <laughs> um, it definitely, it pretty much took anyone who opposed him and made them, you know, extremists and enemies of the state, as he called it. And he lumped in the Christian worldview of abortion and homosexuality into that extremism uh, and enemy language, making the... Um, the Christian, you know, really the true church is the enemy of the United States and the Republic, as he would say. And so uh, that was rather alarming. And I was going to be preaching a message on adoption. Um, and I called my senior pastor and I, so I preach at Niagara Community Church here in Niagara Falls. And I called my senior pastor and I said, hey, um, you know, can I? We're doing this well, little background. We're doing a summer series on the uh, things that happen as soon as you're saved, like upon your salvation, what happens, and you know, redemption, reconciliation, adoption. Um, and so I changed it up to sticking with that, but identity you identify with Christ. And uh, so I preached a message on our identity, and I changed I started changing the message on Fridays and Saturday and then preached it on Sunday. And really as an answer to president Biden uh, for saying we're the enemy um, and just saying, Hey, this is our identity. And I was preaching to my people uh, what I felt the Lord had us to talk about, which is the fact that our identity is with Christ. It's if that makes us extreme in the eyes of the world that is, uh, should be nothing new. And so here is a uh, recording of that message. Um, I, I felt like it was good. I think that preachers and fellow preachers that are listening, I think this is our time to stand. Um, you read in American history, it was pastors and pulpits that really led the charge in a lot of these big uh, changes in our nation in a good way. And they were preaching to their people the evils that they saw around them. And I know in our uh, church, we preach through books of the Bible, uh, typically. Though for the summer, we've been doing a uh, series on salvation. We tend, we've been preaching through the book of Mark um, throughout the year. And then just we're a small church, so with the summer, with most people gone, we usually do a series, uh, expository, topical, which, you know, you take a topic and here's the chunk of scripture that talks about it. And you break that scripture down. So, um, yeah, so this is that, and uh, you'll hear me in my normal voice <laughs> at the end. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be here this morning. Thank you, John and Amy, for the music. Um, and as you know, we've been going through a series this summer on the 33 things that happen at the moment of salvation. And uh, when Pastor Tom and I met, we were going to be going through the beautiful and somewhat forgotten uh, doctrine of adoption this morning, that you have been adopted into God's family at the moment of salvation. 
And it, it is a very important doctrine to wrap our heads around at, as it is often forgotten in our conversations about salvation. Even on our social media, uh, we hear people say, you know, or social media, news, music, popular music, we hear people say, uh, we are all God's children. Everyone that was ever born is God's child. And if you looked at our social media, the question we were going to answer this morning was, are we all God's children? But as Pastor Tom and I were talking a couple of days ago, I felt there was an adjustment needed in the approach this morning. And, and that the Spirit was moving us to cover another aspect of what happens at the moment of salvation. And when you are saved, when you are adopted into the family of God, it is that you identify with Him. At the moment of our salvation, you now identify with Christ. This identity, over the course of history, and in some places today, has been one that is costly. It has cost people their family relationships, their employment, and in some cases, their lives. And what prompted us to make this adjustment in, in our message this morning, my message this morning was a, was a speech given by the sitting president of the United States where he surrounded himself when the Marines on his left and right had a blood-red backdrop, kind of reminiscent of some of the communist dictators we've seen in the past, which was an interesting choice. And he proclaimed that if you are against abortion, and he added if you are against homosexual unions, that you are a, quote, extremist and a, quote, enemy to the republic. Interesting that when he spoke on marriage, he said, marry whomever you love. What if a man claims to love a five-year-old boy? Should we not step in and stop that union? Maybe he wouldn't. And later on in his speech, he called those who follow him to confront and speak out against those who are these, quote, extremists. This is the very same language that we see used against terrorism. And now it is being directed at those who hold a biblical worldview. Interesting that there is actual terrorism going on, like what happened in Amherst, New York here, where they firebombed a pro-life center. And across our nation, as churches are attacked, other pregnancy centers attacked, he doesn't seem to care. This is not any news, but it is alarming coming from the supposed leader of our nation. A man that will willingly ignore what our Constitution says on a whim and declare that what he wants to do now is what he's going to do, whether it's against the Constitution or not. And now, now he says that those who hold to what the Bible says on issues like abortion and marriage are enemies of our nation a people who do not want to see the murder of children are now enemies. And so what do we make of this? What are we to think about being called an extremist for our biblical stance? What are we to make of a culture around us that encourages the murder and mutilation of children? 
In a world that loves to question our identity, how do we identify? Well, at the moment of salvation, you now stand with Christ, the sovereign king of the universe. That is your identity. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. It's Romans chapter 1. What I want to do this morning is walk through where our society is now from Scripture. I want to point out what God in His sovereignty has allowed to happen. I want to show you our response as Christians to this. I want to show you God's response to this. As our culture and nation seemingly want to be an enemy of the Most High. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The first observation we can make from this text is that it is to follow, what is to follow is the wrath of God. In the same verse, Paul describes who the wrath is being poured out on. Quote, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul describes that God is evident to them in the creation, and his attributes and his sovereign intervention in the world is evident, yet they suppress it. And because they suppress God's revelation and their foolishness, they are without excuse, meaning they are out of excuse at the day of judgment. If you look at the complexity of nature and all of God's provisions in it, it is hard to deny God. Yet our public and even some Christian schools work hard day and night to suppress that truth. Every time the illogic and stupidity of evolution is questioned, they simply add another million years to the equation. The thought is nothing plus nothing equals now everything. This evolutionary idea of existence started when Charles Darwin observed what science calls microevolution and says that because of this, species change themselves into different species over time. The Word of God not only rejects this outright, but explains why microevolution happens. God has His sovereign and caring hand on each creature and sustains the whole creation by the same mighty Word that created it. This evolutionary system is not a way to explain the origin of our world, but a way to an attempt to erase God from it. If you erase God from creation, then you will not have to answer to him for following your sinful desires and flesh and not repent. If we can take God out of the beginning, we can take God out of the end. But God will not be mocked. Romans 1, 21-23, he continues, for even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thoughts, 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We see here Paul continuing to speak on this issue. Even though man wishes to take God out, they know it is in it is him. It is impossible to do this, and eventually man must reconcile in his mind and heart that there is a God. By doing this, they come up with a sophisticated-sounding system to sound wise and intelligent, but they are fools. They cannot be wise because, as Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. They have no fear of God. And it is amazing how accurate the scriptures are here. Saying, quote, they became fools and exchanged the glory of, of the incorruptible God for the image and likeness of corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. The thought of man is that creation created itself. We came from monkeys and it all just happened over time. They throw God out and make creation create itself. That is exactly what Paul is saying here. For this foolishness, God sends his judgment. For his foolishness, God sends his judgment. Continuing in verse 24 to 25, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. To understand this more fully, we need to read this in light of Proverbs 29.2, where it says this, quote, When the righteous increase, the people are glad. But when the wicked man rules, the people groan. When a society embraces righteousness, they are glad and will prosper. Righteousness is defined by God, not what our hearts as people feel is good. But when the righteousness of God has been pushed away in a society and people chase the lust of their hearts, they will groan in his judgment. When people reject God's law of righteousness and governing their lives, he will give them over to what they want. And as we see here, lift what seemingly is his restraining hand. That is what verse 1 of Proverbs 29 says. A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond healing. When a society refuses God's discipline, he lifts his hand not to release discipline, but wrath, but judgment. So often we think of the wrath of God as simply a flood from Genesis or fire at Sodom and Gomorrah. Total destruction is what we normally think. However, as we learn in this passage and from studying the nation of Israel, it is so much more. 
The first restraint that is lifted and pursued by people is a sexual revolution, which is what we see here in verses 24 and 25. God gives people over to follow the lusts of their heart. They start to deny the, the good guardrails of keeping their sexual activity in God's restraints, which is marriage between a man and a woman, and dive deeper and deeper into lust. They know this is wrong, but they rush in excitement in their flesh. Their flesh feels this, it feels so, so new and so, so dangerous. And encourages a dime deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. We see that they worship the creature rather than the creator. People worship sex in our nation. Men worship the female body, not because they hold a woman in such high regard, but because they can use it to please themselves. Women buy that lie. They buy, they buy the lie that this is empowering. And by giving into that worship, in reality, they're trading their value as being created in the image of God to become a piece of meat that once it's wrinkled will be thrown away by its worshipers for the younger version. That is all unlike God, who is blessed forever. Their body fades, but the word of our Lord never fades. Our God never changes. Continuing in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. For their females exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another. Males with males committing indecent acts and receiving their own persons the due penalty of their error. Again, we see this phrase, God gave them over. It is as if God is removing his hand that was preventing this in society. It seems like certain lines shouldn't be crossed, and when they are, God removes the staying power to unleash this because now God gives them over to homosexual sin. We see that God gives them over to unnatural things. I will be called an extremist for saying this. So will you. Homosexuality is a sin. It is a choice that is made by the individual to give into temptation, just like we see is the same with heterosexual lust. This sin is perverse and more prevalent in societies that have rejected God. 20 years ago in our nation, we did not see this kind of big of a push or as many people giving into this temptation. Why? Well, first off, as sin has grown in our nation, God has lifted his restraining hand on sin in society. And secondly, we are now seeing teachers indoctrinating our children in the ways of the flesh to turn them over or at least bring our children to acceptance of this perversion. What does the scripture mean when it says receiving in their own person the penalty of their error? 
I believe what we are seeing in this passage is AIDS, monkeypox, other sexually transmitted diseases. God does forgive sin in those who repent. Amen? And there are judgments for sins that are accounted for on Judgment Day. However, we see penalties in this life for sin as well. You can be forgiven of your sin and the eternal consequences when you run to Jesus. But consequences to actions, even if they are repented for, happen. Unfortunately, we also see the consequences of our sin affecting others, even our children. We see people who are sexually promiscuous throughout their lives. And they get some sort of sexually transmitted disease, but they're, they're pregnant, and then their child's born, and their child suffers. Sin brings forth death in many ways. Continuing on in verse 28 of Romans 1, and just as they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over, there it is again, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. After willing disobedience and refusal of society to repent, we see God lifts his hand of restraint and the mind becomes corrupt. All this happens to both individuals and society. We are seeing people with unfit minds running our country. Leaders who cannot, or at least out of fear, will not even define what a woman is. Are you kidding me? You can't figure that out. Transgenderism is having an unfit mind. To be born a male and now say that magically you can identify as a female is utter insanity. Yet to point this out, you are at risk of being ostracized by society. You are at risk of having your business protested and shut down. We're all supposed to sit here and ignore the truth. We're all supposed to suppress the truth and unrighteousness like the rest of society. But we will not. We will not. We will not sit back and watch doctors prey on our children and tell them that they are the opposite sex and while they take a knife and cut off their breasts or genitals all in the name of science, no. This is a bridge too far. Yet, when they have been given over to this corrupt mind, this is this insanity that follows. But those of us who are in Christ have had our eyes opened. Satan does not blind those who are in Christ. He cannot blind our hearts to this perversion. More than just transgenderism, we have seen a mental health crisis that is on the rise. Depression, anxiety, suicide. More than we've ever seen before. 
People are struggling with all sorts of problems as the culture around them pushes and pushes and pushes against God. We are living in an age where it seems that everyone does, as Judges 17, 6 says, does what is right in their own eyes rather than submitting to the righteous decrees of God. We can see all the things in this list fill the hearts of people in our society. Greed and envy become a political philosophy in socialism. The murder of children born in the womb and in schools is only becoming the norm. Our news media can be described as strife, deceit, malice, gossipers, and slanderers, as well as our politicians. We see that more and more people are haters of God. We are inventors of evil. As people go down the rabbit hole of sin, not only do they invent this evil, but they become arrogant and boastful as they violently push it on others. To obey your parents is never encouraged in schools. Rather, they encourage you to go to your teacher for everything and don't tell your parents when they give you hormone blockers. The teachers push sin on those children because they are without understanding. They are untrustworthy. They are unmerciful. And all this is wrapped in a robe of unloving. They do not love our children. They do not love people. God loves and God defines love. Not our evil society. Folks, we are here. <laughs> we are here. Romans 1.31. We're, we're there. Continuing in verse 32. And, I'll know, and although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they do not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. How many companies and people were forced into the rainbow flag and gay parades during June? How many kids had drag queens and pedophiles come in and read to them in the public school system? How many people clapped as an 11-year-old boy dressed as a drag queen on Good Morning America dances around and then a video surfaces of older men being inappropriate to him and no one bats an eye? Beloved, our society not only gives hearty approval, it forces it down your throat. And as their sin corrupts them, they will tolerate the light of the gospel less and less. And they will try to snuff the light out where they can. And now we have the president of the United States not only giving hearty approval, not only forcing it down our throats, but calling us extre extremists and enemies of the public if we do not believe them. If we do not accept the murdering of your child to be okay, you're an enemy. If you don't want pedophiles dancing in front of your kids, and that, and by the way, this is being funded by your tax dollars, you're an enemy. When you don't think a man can be a woman, you're an enemy. When you don't believe that, when you believe that people should pay their own bills, not you, you're an enemy. When you believe that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, as the Bible claims, and therefore it is between a man and a woman, and a man and man shouldn't marry each other, you're a bigot, 
hate-filled, fear-mongering extremist who is to be seen as enemy of a free society. So what do we do? In a time where we can clearly see that our nation is rejecting God and is under his wrath, what do we, his people, do? What do we, the church, do in the midst of this? If you don't think this is coming, you got to wake up. If you don't think that you're going to be whole, you're going to have to, as, as Peter says, take an account, give a defense for the hope that is in you. It's coming. We need to know what to do. When the president of the United States of America says that you are an enemy for believing what the world has believed for years, I mean, I mean everyone, and then not only that, but holding to the Bible as your standard, not the ever-changing wind of the culture, you need to know what to do. This is coming sooner than later. Well, Paul answers that. We're going to jump back up to verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Folks, in this time, our call is not to be weak. Our call is to boldly proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to everyone. If we do not say anything and we just keep our faith hunkered down between the four walls of Niagara Community Church, hoping that things will get better, that people will, will head to hell without ever being warned. And sharing that gospel light from this pulpit and in our workplaces will make us extremists. It will make us the radical enemy because our society has been handed over to the one who hates God. It is our jobs as pastors from this pulpit to beat the gospel drum. Not ashamed to call our culture what it is. Not changing the word of God to make it more tolerable to the sinner. No, we preach Christ and him crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. We must call our culture of death and tell them that there is hope in Jesus' name alone. And when I am tempted, when you are tempted to shy away, to back up, to be ashamed, when we see that the temperature is rising and rising and rising and that Christians are being hated, we need to remember that we identify with Christ. Luke 9, 23 to 26. And he was saying to all of them, if any of you wish to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits 
himself. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If we back away in shame during this time, if we cower in our cubicles, if we will not stand for him when questioned about our faith, Christ claims that he will do the same to us for the Father in his glory. That if we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us. Christ, the Lord of the universe. What does it profit me if I gain the whole world? What, what, what do I gain if I have favor or all the followers or all the good nods from society if I forfeit my soul and spend eternity in hell? We seem to be rapidly approaching a time in this nation where we must pick up our cross and follow him in a much more literal sense. Where denying ourselves seems to make us an enemy of the state. But this is our identity. This is who we are. And Christ says in John 15, 18 through 21, he says this, For if the world hates you, know that it also hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember that the war, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Why should we expect a sinful world not to rail against their enemy, which is the word of God, which is their exposed sin, and meet it with hatred? That's why people I served with did everything with when I was in the army come to me after with hatred. After all I did was make a post declaring that abortion was what it is, murder. I got called a bigot, a hateful person. That's why when, when I say that, that a better way to preventing someone from becoming pregnant is not having sex before marriage instead of murdering your baby. I feel like that's an easier way to do it, a better way to do it. And when I say that, I get called a slut shamer by people I helped in multiple ways through their life. It's because the world hates Christ. And the more they feel as if they are getting away with the hatred of Christ, the more they will hate you and the more they will hate me. So how does God respond to all this? We see that, that our world is, is aligning itself as an enemy of God. This is nothing new. Maybe new in our society at this level, but it's nothing new in history. What does God think? when the people align to him as an enemy. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm chapter 2. That's Psalm chapter 2. And it says this, Why do the nation rage and the people meditate on a vain thing? 
The kings of earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He sent me, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, take insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in your way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The world wars against the Lord by warring against his people. And the Lord laughs at their folly. He mocks them. How frightful would it be to amass an army, to, to get everyone behind you, everyone you know, all the, the tanks, all, all the helicopters, everything. And the enemy of one laughs. That's all you got? Do you really think you're taking on the sovereign Lord of the universe who maintains your very breath? He mocks them. How frightful would it be to see God in all his majesty, all his power, laugh before he crushes you with a rod of iron. Look what God says in verse six. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That king is Christ. The one whom ascended, whom before ascending into the clouds, to the throne room of God, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He says to his disciples and to us in Matthew 28, 18 and 20, a familiar verse, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority is in the king of Zion. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And we are to go into the nations. We're to go into America, into New York, into Niagara County, into Niagara Falls, and teach the people the commands of God. Our call is one that brings people to repentance. We are not to wave the banner of ourselves of Baptist, of Reformed. We love these things. But our banner is Christ, the King. We are His. 
In closing, I'd like us to look at two people from the Old Testament to encourage our faith today. Because when you hear this, you can think, well, okay, this is where the society is, and I'm supposed to call people to repentance, but as you said, it's looking very grim. Well, here's the encouragement. The first we're going to look at is the prophet Jonah. Jonah was a prophet who the Lord told to go to Nineveh to warn of the coming destruction and call them to repentance. Jonah did not think the Assyrians in Nineveh would repent, so he refused to go. He also hated those people. He did not want them to be spared. In his mind, they were not worth saving. As Jonah was running from God, God causes this massive storm, and Jonah is thrown into the belly of a fish until he repents. It's crazy. And then God spits him right up where he needs to be. And Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he preaches to the people there. Jonah 3, verses 4 to 10 says this, Then Jonah began to go into the city one day's walk. Imagine when he was thinking on that walk. And he called out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people in Nineveh believed in God. And they called the fast and put on sackcloth from, from the greatest to the least. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne laid aside his mantle from him and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he cried out and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let do not let man, animal, herd, or flock taste the thing. Do not let them eat. Do not let them drink. But both man and animal are to be covered in sackcloth and let men call on God with their strength and each may turn from his evil way and from the violence which his hand has done. For who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their work, that they had turned from their evil way. So God relented concerning the evil which he had spoken, he would bring upon them. And he did not bring it upon them. God uses the preaching of Jonah to call people to repentance. Because of this, God in his mercy stayed his wrath. God was about to utterly destroy Nineveh. And in the repentance, he did not. God accomplishes his work through the preaching of his people. So we must be bold. We must not be like Jonah, who was unwilling to go to the people and preach repentance. And really, even afterwards, he wanted to watch as Nineveh was destroyed and was angry with God. It is easy to see the state of our nation and say, see, Things are getting worse and worse. So Jesus must be returning. Let's all hunker down and wait for the rapture since, since the world is perishing anyways. This is not the right response. The right response that we are to have when the world seems to be unraveling at the seams is in our second character of the Old Testament. 
Noah. God tells Noah that he's going to destroy the earth with a flood and commands him to build a massive boat to save his family and two of every animal. So Genesis 6 through 9, Noah does what God, as God commands. He builds an ark. When he was commanded to enter, God sealed the door, drowning everyone and everything outside of it. Genesis 7, 23 says, Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. They were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah remained, and those that were with him in the ark. Noah watches everything he has ever known be covered in water. His works, or his work, his friends, his extended family. All Noah has ever known in his life is gone. This can be equivalent today to having a tornado or a hurricane come through. Everything is gone. You lose loved ones. You lose your house. You lose your car. You lose all the pictures of your family. And you're in shock. And from reading the passage here, it seems as if Noah just started building as soon as God gave him the order. We don't really see much of an interaction with others. So, so what happened between Genesis 6.22 and Genesis 7.1? Well, we see this in 2 Peter 2, 2-4. It says this, For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. And how does it describe Noah? A preacher of righteousness. With seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah, for 120 years, that God was patient with people on the earth, preached repentance. He preached to people of the earth that God was going to bring his just wrath upon them. And as Christ told his disciples, they just kept eating, sleeping, being married, and living their lives until one day it was too late. We are to be preachers of righteousness at this time. Let us take a, a lesson from Noah. That seems to be the opposite of Jonah. Jonah. Jonah was forced to preach by God against his desires and a whole, whole city, the whole kingdom of Nineveh repented. Noah preached and pleaded. And only the only ones who listened were his children. When it is God's time for judgment, it is his time. And we need to be humble enough to realize that and submit ourselves to it. But either way, we must be willing to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone we come across. Because it is the only message that gives eternal life. Let us remember, 
as it seems that persecution is coming down the pipe, that we are to identify with Christ. Like in the days of old during the Soviet Union, we will see Christians change their message in order to appease those who would persecute them. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. Let us not live for this world. Let us live for his kingdom. Let us not give up. Let's not give up hope. Let us lovingly call our family and friends to turn to Christ. Let's tell them about Christ. That as they go down the sinful path with the rest of society, there's no hope. There's no light. They can't be reconciled to God through that. Let's give the truth and love to those around us. But when we are questioned by authorities, when we are called extremists, when we are called enemies of the state, when we're turned into the police for believing what we believe, if it comes to that, let us be bold as lions, declaring that the Lord, Jesus Christ, is King. Let us pray.